Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of Pasha. My name is Godfred Boafo. And I'm Nondobe Gomjali. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode focuses on the secret histories of the drug trade in Southern Africa. Our guest is Tembiza Weizjian, an associate professor and head of the history department at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa. She starts by explaining the term Snyman. Okay, well, thanks so much for having me. So today, if you go to the eastern suburbs of Johannesburg to score some of that mixture of heroin known as nyope, you would look for a Snyman. Snyman has been a slang word for drug dealers since the late uh, 1960s and early 1970s. It was actually the name of a medical doctor, Dr. H.W. Snyman, who was tasked by the government at that time with securing laws to regulate medicines. Dr. Snyman was responsible for the 1965 Medicine and Related Substances Control Act, which was a, a drugs control act. So the fact that this man is now, this man's name is now a slang word for a drug dealer is a good example of how legal controls and resistance to those controls arise together. They're linked realities, they're not separate ones. You know, one reason drug histories often seem secret or hidden from view is because illegal substances and the people using them are often at the margins of what is visible in society, or they might be visible but only in a negative way, which is often actually a social effect of the criminalized status of the substance itself. Tembisa went on to say that people tend to think of drugs and medicines as very different things, both chemically and morally. But often, the chemistry is identical and history helps us understand that drugs and medicine are not dichotomous things. Southern Africa has a rich history of drugs, illicit and pharmaceutical drugs, which are often intertwined. But why does it matter that this history is explored? Well, it's a rich history and also a difficult history. But this history matters because we alive today inherit the ideas, the laws, and the institutional politics of people who preceded us. And we may not be aware of the misconceptions or the social effects of prejudices that we inherit. And when we look critically at the past, we see more clearly how certain substances and certain groups of people become classified as normal and others as abnormal. Now, cannabis is a case in which historical prejudices are now today being critically reevaluated in the light of medical and, well, let's be honest, commercial interests. And the, the premier of the Gauteng province in South Africa has recently indicated that cannabis agribusiness is going to be embraced as a strategy to grow the economy. We in Gauteng will focus on the industrialization and agro-processing of the cannabis industry. unlocking the cannabis industry especially especially for use for medicinal purposes and and many other areas such as healthcare including skin care i don't want to be those part of those who want to use it for other things I do find this encouraging because it means that, as a society, we are rethinking our approaches to the legacy of a seriously problematic drugs policy. If you look at why early 20th century governments around the world suppressed dacha or weed, there is a nasty historical, racial and political control. Ideas circulated among empires and nations that cannabis directly caused insanity, crime, sexual promiscuity and sex across the color line. So there was a panic among English-speaking white people in colonial South Africa about the breakdown of race segregation. 
History shows us that South Africa's suppression of cannabis in 1923 did not eradicate it. Instead, it stimulated the formation of an impressive illegal cannabis economy. Not a lot is known about the opium trade in Southern Africa. Can you give us a brief overview on it? Well, my own research is on histories of opium and opioids in South Africa. It's well known to historians that in the 18th and 19th centuries, an opium trade grew up in Asia. The British Empire in India created a plantation economy for growing opium, most of it for the Chinese market. And the British used opium profits to fund its colonial government in India. Now, from about the 1870s, Southern Africa was drawn into this imperial politics of opium supply. In colonial Mozambique, the Portuguese ran a brief 20-year experiment in growing opium poppies. And in the early 20th century, after South Af the South African War, the Imperial Transvaal government and local pharmacists actually collaborated to import tons of opium legally. And that opium was for indentured Chinese migrant workers who had been transported for gold mine work between 1904 and 1910. Essentially, this opium was to keep mines productive. And after the opium trade developed in the mining compounds, um, the government felt like the cat was out of the bag, and so they became profiteers in this opium trade. But to be honest, most of the opium that South Africans have consumed has been in the form of legal medicines. And in the early days, before enforceable laws were created, these were sold over the counter freely. Currently, there is an illegal heroin trade in and around South Africa. It can be traced as an effect of the American military intervention in the Middle East since 2001. Heroin grown in Afghanistan, which was destined for illicit markets across Europe, was diverted from overland routes to sea routes down the coast of Africa. Most of it was supposed to be for transshipments from South Africa to Europe. This has generated local markets and criminal governments in Southern and Eastern Africa as well. But what we also need to be aware of, even though we're talking about sort of illegal trafficking, that there's a trade in opioid pharmaceuticals. Um, both legal and illegal. So there's been a lot of news lately about oxycodone and codeine medicines, cough syrups, uh, as well as a traffic in fentanyl. Fentanyl is a, an intensely powerful synthetic opioid. So we need to be aware of these realities. And in South Africa, we need media and policymakers to generate and work with good empirical information and data. We can't afford the exaggerations and panic mongering that tends to happen around social issues uh, that are related to drug, drug substances. Traditionally, drug issues have a very negative perception, especially in the way they are reported on. Why is it important for a change in public opinion? Well, one of the cultural values or perceptions we as a society have inherited is that drug use is about morality. Good people or strong-willed people do not use drugs, we think. But this is a myth, and most of us do consume drug substances, some of us routinely and dependently. Um, but people supporting a drug habit that involves a restricted substance often resort to criminal markets and criminal behaviors. So there's a linkage in the public mind between people using a drug and people stealing, for example. What we need in this situation is not more punitive laws for use and possession. What we need is better and more accessible and also non-judgmental forms of care. 
People don't need prison. They don't need coercive lockdown treatments. They don't need dogmatic religious lectures. But there's a lot of public fear. There's a lot of blame. There's a lot of prejudice and xenophobia that happens around substances and around people with a, who have a substance use disorder. So it's important to stop the fear and look at evidence-based approaches because this has a better chance of creating security for everyone. The historical evidence shows that wars on drugs don't work. Thanks for tuning in to this episode produced by Ozer Patel. From me, Godfred Boafo. And for me, Nondobe Gomjali, it's bye for now.